0: Hello everybody, welcome to the Visionary Fiction Alliance Authors Interview Series. I'm your host, Brad Swift, and it's my pleasure to spend time interviewing other visionary fiction authors as we explore this fascinating, and yes, evolving genre. This show is a part of Visionary Fiction Alliance, whose has a purpose, and the purpose is to increase awareness of the visionary fiction genre, and also to help readers discover, explore, and enjoy visionary fiction. One of the ways we're fulfilling on that purpose is with the Visionary Fiction Reader's Pass, which is on our website, and you can find out a ton of information about visionary fiction and the Alliance at visionaryfictionalliance.com. Now today, I'm going to introduce you to our visionary fiction author. It's my pleasure to introduce you to Rob Springer. Welcome to the call today.
1: Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me here on this interview.
0: Yeah, glad, glad to have you. I'm looking forward to this. I, I, I love picking the brain of, of other uh, authors. I always come away with some, some nuggets that I can use. Uh, now, I want to say just a little bit about Rob. Uh, he's been writing on and off since high school, so that's probably at least, what, 10, 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> he eventually got his BA in English with a creative writing emphasis, but life had other plans for him. Now, I think some of the other people in this call probably uh, can relate to that. So instead of going into teaching, as I guess you had intended, he found working, uh, work in publishing. Along the way, Twin Towers fell. His job, along with many other jobs, was shipped to India. And due to that outsourcing, he had a chance to return to school at the, just a perfect age of 62 years of age. Just yeah. making him a late-life Master of Arts recipient. Now, during all this time, this novel that we're going to be talking about today, Organ Pipes of the Soul, well, it kept playing, I guess you could say, kept reminding him not to forget it. And with the current pandemic, as we're all dealing with, that has increased his motivation to get the story out once and for all. So let's get started and delve into some questions today for you, Rob. And I always start each of these interviews with the same two questions. One is... How would you define visionary fiction? And secondly, why do you think visionary fiction is so important to our world today? And when I say the world today, especially now that we're in this COVID-19 world. So let's start with that first question. How, how would you personally define visionary fiction?
1: I think to me, visionary fiction is fiction where a spiritual component is essential to the story. Um, the main characters or the character arc uh, involves the spiritual metamorphosis or transformation of the character. Um, there are lots of, of novels that have spiritual elements, but if you you could remove them theoretically, mm-hmm. and it, it would still function as a story. Um, in a visionary fiction, you would end up with a very different story if you took the visionary took the spiritual element out. The vision, in effect, would be lost.
0: Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. So why is that important, particularly today in the COVID-19 era?
1: Well, it's important because, um, especially in the West, um, we're living in a, in a time of, in secularization, if you will, and also of spiritual seeking. So people who um, have a spiritual uh, quest, if you will, are looking for ways to explore that. Um, there are a lot of ways to explore that, and visionary fiction is, is, I think, one of the probably the most enjoyable. I mean, you could get out a nonfiction book on visual visionary topics or spiritual topics, but if you read a story that is uh, visionary fiction, you follow a character's evolution, you follow a character's development. And exploration of it and that's like being with a, a real person and so it gives you a chance to explore through that person's experience.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a very good point. Yeah, I know for myself even before I had discovered Visionary Fiction Alliance, before I really even knew that there was something called visionary fiction, I started thinking of being a visionary, you know, author who writes fiction mm. and the way I kind of define it is first and foremost, it has to be entertaining. It has to engage the reader sufficiently that they'll enjoy reading the book. And then what comes after that is where the real visionary part comes that they read the book and maybe the book doesn't just, they're not right immediately on to the next book, but they're, they're left with something, you know, in your case, what you're saying that the spiritual component, you know, they're, yeah. you're, they're I- exploring that itself.
1: Yeah, that's a good way to put it um, because when when you read any novel, any well-written novel, you are exploring life with a character and with a visionary, a novel that's visionary fiction, you're exploring that life and its spiritual evolution.
0: Yeah, yeah. So would you say it's not the time frame, like what period the story takes place? Is that important or not?
1: Well, it may be important to an individual story, but it's not important to the essence of visionary fiction. Visionary fiction could happen in the contemporary world. It could happen in the past. It could happen in a a timeless setting, you know, something Arthurian or or, or, uh, absolutely fabulous, fantastic, made up. It it really, in that sense, time and place are. are parts of the story, but they're not parts of why it's visionary.
0: Yeah, yeah, very well said, very well said, very good. Okay, so we got a good sense of what visionary fiction is, how it can contribute really at any time, and maybe even more so right now. Um, let's take a moment, turn to our focus to visionary, your visionary fiction. Okay always interested in hearing about the backstory of a book. So can you share with with our listeners the backstory of Organ of the Soul?
1: Um, I was taking a a warm-up class, if you will. I I had had my uh, BA and I hadn't written anything in a while, so I took a, uh, a creative writing class through Butler University through the Indianapolis Library, so it was reduced price. Um, and I was trying to resurrect a novel I'd written, uh, during my VA, which was a, a biography into fiction and it wasn't working and it never did get off the ground. But right at the end I had, I saw a, a t-shirt that said, life is like, uh, heaven is like a library. And so I, overnight kind of the muse woke me up and I wrote this three page fiction, which the creative writing instructor basically dismissed as a tidy little conceit. Meaning, you know, he thought it was, you know, it was really cute and it was nice, but he didn't want to discuss it. He didn't, didn't. That was it. However, after that less than valuable class, I got into a writing group. And uh, one of the members of the writing group um, was not an experienced writer, but the other, two others, one had an MA in creative writing. And the other was a professional writer who um, would write for like Eli Lilly or something. But he also wrote fabulously like, good fiction so i had excellent feedback as the as this little three-page story um became a novel and uh at the time it was called isle of the dead and it sort of evolved and it had the two main characters that remain in the novel now arthur and l and uh, i was trying to put it together it never quite came together the way i wanted and i got to the end of it and by then the writing group had sort of disbanded and i said well i'm going to finish this and i did right at the end of it i knew i needed to start over and start a whole new draft and and basically just go as much from memory as possible um drawing what was best out of that first draft and when i got to chapter three um on the screen sort of and you read about this you never think oh yeah they make that stuff up um came coyote awoke with uh with a hole in her heart and so it's like the third character third point of view uh, character, this is limited omniscience, so each of the point of view characters only knows what they would know, mm-hmm. wrote herself into the story, and all of a sudden the entire story sort of started to, to uh, unwind, if you will, and I started following, you know, her story and then the other two stories, and they all intertwined, and everything worked its way out.
0: Now, let me ask you, was this third character, Yeah, I think she said
1: Coyote, yeah.
0: was she in the original uh, draft?
1: No, completely not even there, not even, no one like her. There was no one like her under another name. I mean, she just sort of walked into the story unbidden with an entire backstory, a fully, you know, a fairly developed character. Hmm. I mean, I later realized sort of, if you want to call it that, that she was from the American Southwest and her background was, her grandfather had uh, emigrated from Mexico and was uh, Apache Indian. So she was a warrior woman, she was a Marine, she became a state police, and then she became, uh, and this is how she ends up in the novel, Border Patrol, when she gets murdered, you know, doing her, her job. And she wakes up in this afterlife. And that point of view was so refreshing that the other characters all gelled even better than before, and the mm-hmm. story went on.
0: She so was kind of like the, the needed catalyst that, that, that made it all
1: that's the perfect word.
0: Yeah, yeah. Kind of like, you know, it's hard to make really good bread without the right yeast, you know. <laughs> so Especially yeah. with the yeast. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, very but good. That was, that was still
1: almost 10 years before the thing ended up on uh, Aaron Yeagle's uh, desk at, at Vizia Publishing. Um, I just kept rewriting it, refining it, trying to get people to help me, you know, like give me feedback or read it. Um, and kept editing it and changing it little bits at a time, but the basic story gelled almost 10 years before I sent it off.
0: Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you to, you know, get a little bit on the timeline. So that first part where you were writing it, when did that start? When did you first start the first draft, so to
1: speak? I would say it was in 2001 because the writing group, uh, so I think Started the class ended and you know uh, and and the writing group sort of took off around 2001.
0: I got you. Okay, so yeah. you know only in nineteen 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 years in the making.
1: Yes, <laughs> yes.
0: So at that rate, how many more novels do you expect to write? I'm just well, thinking. I
1: actually have one other one that I, mm-hmm. I I wrote for my master's. I just I theoretically, I mean, when you write a master of arts and they expect a novel at the end of it, I could have taken organ pipes and sort of like, hey, you know, not tell them, that's not gonna work. I really wanted to take full advantage of the MA program. And so when I walked into that, all I had for a novel, for a concept um, I had, again, this happened at work before the MA, I I basically was thinking about the concept of the resurrection of the dead. Um, And it's not as simple as a lot of people think, um it's the full-blown resurrection of the physical body it's not like you're you're now floating in heaven as a disembodied angel hanging around with god or something um your body is resurrected physically you are because we are physical beings and if you try to remove the physicality from the human being you really don't have a fully human being so if people are going to be resurrected from the dead, you know, there are these little comic strips that you might've seen at bus stops and stuff. And, and there is this vast array of, of countless people standing in front of the throne of God. It's like, yeah, but how many of us are going to communicate? I don't speak Babylonian.
0: <laughs>
1: so, I mean, if everyone's being resurrected from the dead. Um, and my concept of that is fairly universal. Um, you know, that pretty much everybody gets another chance. And that's what the novel is. Um, and so I, I took what basically was a, and I created it in Word, a handout. I'm sorry, I'm waving my hands around, I'm getting all worked out here.
0: That's okay. I
1: created this handout, a uh, hypothetical handout that you would get when you woke up in what looks like a hospital, but is actually called a resurrectorium. Hmm. And so it says, you know, why are you, why there are no one here speaking Babylonian? You're a resurrected in a cohort along with people who are familiar with your culture. So 1920 art is people from the 19th and 20th centuries, you know, something like you know like mid-19th all the way through the 20th, people who could understand, "Oh, steam engines don't scare me, they're not demons or monsters or anything, so that you're not resurrected along with the people from you know 1410 or 2000 BC or something. Uh, that's all I had going into it when I did the MA, and uh, so I wrote a first draft. Um, by myself, which was about 50,000 words. And the concept for the MA was that this was going to be an open source story, and I would get other writers to help out. And I was assuming it would be like Studs Turkle's uh, book, nonfiction book, Working, where he simply goes out and he interviews hundreds of people and he boils it down to the best of them. So I asked hundreds of people, people at the campus, people on my Facebook, would you be willing to write a story under the writing prompt? You've awakened in what looks like a hospital and told you've been resurrected from the dead. I got almost no responses. (laughs) (laughs) So my wife uh, was kind enough to write a friend of hers who lives in Nova Scotia who writes novels uh, for a living. She writes romance mystery novels. And she agreed to write a couple chapters and my wife wrote several chapters and my son wrote one chapter because he was ill at the time and that's the best he could do. And so with those, I now had to take my original story and uh, take their work and incorporate it and then continue where they left off because none of them wrote a complete arc. Right. Um, That was a masterclass right there, having a professional writer um, and other writers with their own point of view and their own voices and then having to incorporate those voices. So I have two novels, theoretically. Um, I have started working on a, a sequel to Organ Pipes of the Soul, but it's, um, it's moving very slowly. I have to know how it ends, and I don't know that yet.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I've often heard and found it to be useful when you can follow it as, you know, right the beginning and the end, and yeah. then in the middle.
1: But, yeah, so, there are uh, different I think, styles. Uh, one is yeah, called pantser, you know, you write by the seat of your pants, and then other people outline the whole thing. Well, for me, the outline is the first draft, seat of the pants writing, and then I start over and do another one, and I did that with both novels.
0: Yeah, yeah, very good. Well, um, you, you kind of shared a good bit of this. I, I want to go back, you know, around the Backstory, you know, what were some of the obstacles that slowed the process? So you've, you've shared some of that. Anything else as to, you know, what um, What got, you know, kind of got in the way? Um,
1: for, oh for I, decades? I'm on a group called Writers Helping Writers and I, I'm fairly active and I'm not the only one who's had this experience work uh, the job I was doing for the publisher uh, was not physical labor. I was behind a desk all day. You know, and uh, I found that rather dispiriting, if you will. Yeah. So I would come home and I would maybe, you know, I'd spend time with my wife, which is the thing I most want to do anyway. And we'd maybe watch television or play a backgammon game or something, whatever we would do, it wouldn't be creative writing. Yeah. Unless the muse literally shook me awake at three in the morning and said, here, I've got a short story or a poem. And that didn't happen very often. And I've had that happen with, with drawing and paintings as well occasionally, but less often now pretty much. But my point being, I just I would get up and if I got to work an hour early or half hour early, I might tinker away at the novel having spent half of that time reading the previous chapter because hmm. it's been a week. Yeah. And I have, I have to get familiar with the story again because it's not all in my brain. Um, and only after the whole thing is complete and I'm, I'm, I found myself retired and I've got my MA and I'm like, now I have this whole thing, I can read it, I can reread it, I can read it a third time if I have to and the story's in my head. Now I can finally do a complete polish, a better edit, and uh, make it really, I think, as complete as it can be. And then there's, there's the phenomenon, and I've heard this with uh, artists, you know, oil painting in particular, oils dry slowly, <laughs> when will you make it end? You know, you go up there and you're like, oh, I think I'll put a little bit of red in here. And, you know, you finally have to hit a point with a painting or a story or even a poem. I've heard of poets who refine and refine and they go through 20, 30 drafts. We're talking, you know, maybe 50 words. But they spend months and months and months just refining this thing until they change that. At some point, all of us have to say it's done. Yeah, okay? It's as good as I can get it. Um, it's as set as I can say it and send it off to a publisher or someone who you hope will publish it. Um, and there I was particularly blessed. Yeah. Uh, I sent it to uh, Aaron Yeagle, and he wrote back and said, Oh, you're with the visionary fiction Alliance. Uh, he read chapter one. I said, well, I have chapter two online at organ the which is a website I created for it quite a few years ago and had done very little really, if you want to admit, you know, so he looked at those three chapters, which uh, it's essential because there are three point of view characters in a limited omniscient. You know, you only know each character only knows what they know. Right. And so he read those three and he said, yeah, this looks good. Uh, send me the rest of it. And I did. And he said, yeah, this is good. I, I think well, we can work on this and send me a contract. Um, the usual you know, box full of rejection letters that would have probably made me put the whole thing away and say, forget it, I'm going to go back and oil paint. You know, I'll just stop writing, you know, I've got two novels, maybe they'll be published when I'm dead for 100 years. Um, I didn't have to go through that. I mean, my pastor was asking people, we talked about COVID-19, what have you been doing with yourself during the COVID-19 break? We can't meet in church anymore. What have you been doing? And I wrote him and said, I think I was especially blessed. I got my novel accepted by a publisher first time. This just doesn't happen. And uh, I'm so grateful to Aaron for believing in the story, for reading it and liking it enough to say, hey, I think we can sell this. I think people will want to read this. I think when they've read it, they're gonna tell other people that this was worth reading. And so I'm so juiced at having somebody read this and go, yeah, I like this. This is good.
0: Yeah yeah very good yeah I, I would i would have to concur that um you know while lots a lot of people are being very greatly challenged by the covid nineteen mm-hmm. um you know other than missing playing uh softball and pickleball with my friends you know uh my professional life is goes pretty much the same, and i just substitute a lot more walking which is really great because I I get much more creative ideas walking than I do playing pickleball or softball. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. 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 Uh,
1: Well, I, I, I've been teaching and my teaching went online during the semester because of COVID-19 and uh, I begin next semester, actually the day before the novel comes out classes start again and that will be online. So there are changes for me, but um, you know, the biggest changes I think have been societal and seeing uh, yeah. those changes go through society. My mm-hmm. wife makes masks and she pretty, mo- most of the time she donates them. Occasionally people in the neighborhood ask if they could buy one.
0: Wow, so, so is my, my, my wife doing the same thing. You know, she, she's, good. Had, she's had three sewing machines here since we moved here, which was 26 years ago, none of which worked well. And now she's gotten all three of them working and she got one particular one that she really likes because she's, you know, so that she can turn out masks, you know, quicker. So, it's good, very good, very good. But regarding the Organ of the Soul, um, what, what do you want the readers of, of your novel to come away with?
1: That's a good question. Um, excuse me if i are gonna play with my ear here, it's itching. Uh, okay, what I would like, first of all, for them to come away having enjoyed a story. Right. I mean, it's no good if they get them like slogging through going, oh, oh, this is, this is not any fun to read, but I'll force myself to finish it because I always finish my novels. Um, I want them to enjoy the story and I, I think it's an enjoyable story. I think it's, it moves. I think it uh, the story itself will carry them from the beginning to the end. Um, and then I want them to come away having reflected on a few things. First of all, uh, a lot of people believe in reincarnation, and I don't think anyone ever asks questions, well, what does that imply? Um, when I set this the story up, um, reincarnation, it's almost sort of like a, a problem to be explored or, or something to be asked about. Um, if you reincarnate, what does that mean? Um, was somebody, are all of us, uh, and some people believe this, but are all of us basically reincarnated spirits Or are there new spirits who were never reincarnated before? Um, And so I I look into that, um, you know, and inside the story, there are people who don't think we should reincarnate. So that creates the conflict that you have to have for any decent story. Hmm. Um, So I have, in effect, two characters who have different takes on reincarnation that are very negative and they're trying to, you know, kind of derail all of it. And the main characters then have to struggle with that. Um, one of them, uh, is, you know, very much in favor of reincarnation, but occasionally has to ask herself the same. She's directly asked these questions and has to respond to them. The other uh, aspect of it is what's called theodicy, which is a defense of, of the nature of God in the face of evil. And it's something that I think about and have thought about a lot. I mean, it's, I don't think there are easy answers to that. So I don't have easy answers in the book. I have some answers, some things that I've concluded. Um, and basically, you know, for some people, if you, if you say God is good or God is just, you have to justify every single form of pain and you can't do that. So, okay, well God's not good because God didn't make a world free of pain. Um, to me evil, uh, the question of good and evil is, is really a human question. Um, and then if, if, all of us behave toward each other the way God would be would have us do, or the way, if you will, God behaves toward us, um, which is agape love, self-sacrifice. Then this would be a very different world we live in. <laughs> you know, yeah, we wouldn't need prisons, we wouldn't need police, we'd just be all loving on each other all the time. And yes, then if your if the river rises, and we see this today. We are imperfect individuals, we tend to be selfish, and yet when the river rises and someone's been hurt in a flood or a tornado or a fires or something, people pour themselves out, you know, whether they send $20 to you know Red Cross or something, or whether they drive down there with a truck full of water Mm -hmm. and supplies and help out. That's the other aspect of of this whole question. So if the Odyssey is defending God in the face of, of the question of evil, and you make the question of evil that question of, well, I gave you free will. What do you do with it? Hmm. So the main character is told at some point by a a character named Preacher that God wants to see him. That's Preacher's purpose in the novel, and he doesn't know this at first, but he hooks up with Arthur, and then he later hooks it back up with Arthur. Arthur is the main character and says, God wants to see you. And he says, "That's my message. You can come with me if you want and go see God, or you know you can go your own way. You know I've delivered my message, and that's it. So Arthur's like, "I don't know if I want to go see God. Yeah. I have a I have a task. I want to go find l. L is the other main character. It was his love, and he's his his friends say, Well, why don't you go with him? We've got this under control. We're heading over to the library. you go with with this character and as he's marching off with with the preacher, he realizes, yes." I really do want to know if God's at the other end of the line. You know, I've always wondered that, you know, are my prayers ever answered? Is there anybody there? So Arthur goes off to see God and guess what? He meets God, but God looks just like Arthur. He's got his voice, his face. He's he's like, this is not an answer. This isn't the answer I was expecting. So he has what he describes at the end as a Socratic dialogue gone bad. But he has his dialogue, he has his chance, and he does not get all of his questions answered because we don't get all of our questions answered.
0: Right. I'm going to stop you there because I don't want you to give away too many <laughs> spoilers, You know, because- Okay. You know, so when I was in school, it was always, you know, you gave your book report, but you always ended it with, but if you want to know what happens next, you have to read the book. So we want people to come and read <laughs> <the book. laughs>
1: Okay, well, that's good, yeah.
0: So. Um, let's just for a moment here before we uh, conclude, since we've got somebody here who's had a good bit of uh, education around the area of writing, let's turn, you know, the attention to the process of writing itself. okay. So, I think a lot of people that, um, checking in with our show are either first time writers or new writers or even aspiring, you know, authors. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the common traps? for aspiring writers or authors, especially right. any ones that you may have fallen into and now can help others avoid.
1: Well, I'd say the first trap is to think it's easy. And the second trap is to think it's too hard for you.
0: Oh, very good.
1: You're complimentary. I mean, and I think a lot of people start off thinking it's very easy and then find out it's not easy. Um, and they quit thinking, well, I can't do this. Another one is to think you need to be trained to do this. You know, you need a degree. I I got my degree in English because I thought, well, I'll teach English. What else am I going to do um, with my life? I got accepted that the Heron School of Art, when I was already three-fourths of the way through my English degree, I was married with a child and my wife and I were like, okay, never mind, finish the English degree. But that didn't teach me to write other than give me what anybody who wants to write can get from a very from a good writing group which is feedback yeah i got as much from my good writing group as i did in my uh va which was you know basically people telling you what where you lost them in the in the novel you know in the story um stephen king's a uh, book on writing is a good source for anyone wanting to write in today's age if you're writing a victorian novel don't read stephen king okay? but if you're writing <laughs> today, yeah, You may not even like Stephen King. You may not like horror, but he, as he puts it in, in his own book, I write, I sell a lot of books. So I must know something. right? And I love his description. Writing is like a telepathic link. You know, you are in effect unrolling a dream into the brain of another person. Mm-hmm. And if you drop the ball, they'll, they'll wake up from the dream and go, oh, wait a minute, I'm out of it. And then they have to decide. Well, I'll try again, uh, and I'll pick up the story. And the way you do that is through, uh, you know, writing mm. sentences that are either too complicated or difficult to follow. It, precision is an essential thing, and you don't get that unless you write a lot. And that's the other thing I would say to all aspiring writers. Yeah, I don't know. If you really need ten thousand hours of practice—that famous figure that people throw out—but you just need to do a lot of it. and yeah. I'm on a, board call, a Facebook board called Writers Helping Writers, and a lot of other more experienced writers will say the same thing to people who come on who are very new. What do I do? First thing you do, write, 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 write. And the second one is to, you know, to get in a good group, uh, get good feedback. And if you get in a bad group, leave. Yeah. If you're in a group where people are tearing each other down or where they're using this writing group as an, an ex- exercise in ego, just leave, find another group. This lady, a sure. writing group is there for support, uh, critique is, to, is, to place, is, in or, is there in order to tell you what a reader, you know, I'm reading your, your bit, you lost me here, okay, you'll need to work on that, I didn't understand what you meant with this, those are feedbacks that all good writers need to get good, and all good writers even now, I mean, you, you need that, you never give up the need for that. So flee, if you get into a bad writing group, find a good writing group, write, read a few books. Uh, another author I recommend on how to write is Ursula Le Guin. Mm-hmm. She wrote two books, uh, A Wave in the Mind. Uh, it's one of them. I wrote the other one down and forgot it. But if you look up Ursula Le Guin, you'll find she's got books on writing and they're very good. One of them has exercises in it for you, which is excellent.
0: Too. Yeah, very good. My um, uh,
1: MA a thesis instructor pointed me at that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, very good. Yeah, you know, the two things that you spoke about ear- you know, earlier in that uh, answer was, uh, I think it was Ray Bradbury said, you know, just write, the first million words don't count anyway. <laughs> you know, yeah. That, that kind of stop you, You're like, well, what do you mean? You know, the first mi- which, but he was just saying, you know, the more you can write, the more, you know, the better you'll get at it.
1: Oh, yeah, he's absolutely right.
0: Um, I believe it was several years ago, I interviewed uh, Orson Scott Card, mm-hmm. who's a pretty great science fiction and fantasy writer and writes in a lot of different genres, actually. Yes. One of the things that he said that really struck me he said, you know, as a writer, you need to believe that you've got something so important to say that you have got to write. And at the same time, knowing that pretty much everything you have to say is going to be just BS. Kind of have to find that balance between those two. Yes,
1: Yes. and he is—he's actually another one of those writers on writing. That's a a great read. Um, Yeah, I I read some of his. I had—it's been so long, I forgot Orson Scott Card. But yes, yeah, Um, Yeah. I would highly recommend him too for the same reasons.
0: Yeah, I'm—I'm rereading. I think for the third time, character and viewpoint of his now because. I, you know, I, I endeavor to write character-driven stories, and he does, a, I think, a very admirable job about that. So, yes. we've talked about this Organ of the Soul book. Hmm. Now, maybe we would let people know how could they go about getting the book when it comes out?
1: Well, uh, wow,
0: right. yeah, it's, it's when's it due out?
1: It's due out uh, August 25th. Um, okay. And organpipesofthesoul.com will take you to uh, a link uh, to Vizia, and you can pre-order it or you can order it. Um, right now, I think that's, that's what I would recommend. Or, it's, and it's easiest to recommend. organpipesofthesoul, one word, .com.
0: Very good.
1: And, uh, there's a link there for pre-purchase, plus you can read the first three chapters. Very You and go. get an idea of who these characters are, Arthur, L, and Coyote.
0: Yeah, very good. We'll find out how Coyote chewed her way into this novel.
1: <laughs> it's terrible, but that's the best I could come with.
0: on for the moment. <laughs> so, well, Rob, I want to thank you for being on our uh, interview today. Uh, I, I learned a lot from it. Um, I, I, you know, wish you the very best of luck on the book. May thank your you. next book not take 19 years to write, because you know <laughs> people are going to want to you know read the next one. You know, you know.
1: Yeah. It's Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time on this too. Um, I enjoy talking to you, Brad. So this is good for me too. Very,
0: very great. Okay, everybody, and I'll be back in just a, few, uh, a couple of moments with the Right on Purpose coaching tip of the day. Stay right. tuned. Bye. And we're back. Today's video interview is sponsored by Right on Purpose Coaching, and today is the write on purpose coaching tip. After I've shared many times, uh, a lot of my coaching is with aspiring writers, authors who want to one day some way write a book. And I've often talked about how important the whole purpose idea is, how it's important to know what your life purpose is if you really wanna make a significant contribution with your writing. And I've heard about the different way of looking at your life purpose, that your life purpose isn't just about what you're here to do, but it's more about who you are that then begins to shape what you do. Like to think that we're a spiritual being here to be and to express our life purpose. Now, today, I'd like to weave that in with a favorite quote of mine. It's by Frederick Buckner, and it goes like this. "The place." God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meets. Now, I'd like for you to consider that what Buckner is actually pointing to when he says the place God calls you to is pretty much another way of saying knowing with crystal clarity and living your life purpose. Now, but what does this all have to do with writing and publishing a book? Well, consider this for a moment. What does it have to do with it? Well, here's what I see about this and want you to kind of try on. That your deep gladness is what you're passionate about in your life. And when you know your life purpose with real clarity, it allows you to really tap into those things you're most passionate about, which then can become things that you are most passionate about writing. And believe me, (laughs) it's a lot more fun and empowering to write about what you care and are passionate about. But that's not all the equation. The other part of the equation is the world's deep hunger. Just like your life purpose isn't just about you, and yet it includes you, for your writing to contribute and make a significant difference it needs to, in some way, satisfy that world's deep hunger. Now, it'll be different hunger if you're writing nonfiction versus fiction. It'll even be a different hunger you're out to satisfy if you know, the different genres you're writing. But you wanna keep an eye on both parts of the equation. What's your deep passion? And what is the deep hunger? And where those two meet? That's where you got a winner. So that's today's Write on Purpose coaching tip. You've heard me say it before. If you're one of those people who wants to try your hand at writing, or you're one of the people that said, one day, someday, I'm going to write a book, well, we should talk. And you can find out more about my writing and my coaching at my website at wbradfordswift.com. If you want to find out more about my coaching Right On Purpose Coaching, you can go to wbradfordswift.com forward slash coach. In the meantime, may your life be on purpose, be filled with passion and plenty of play. Take care and stay safe.